Stephen Kassoon is our leader today. Stephen, thanks for uh, coming and being with us today. Stephen is from, uh, comes from Sovereign Hope, and uh, he's the campus leader there, I believe. Is that, am I correct campus on that? Director. Campus right. director. Campus right. director, all right. <laughs> Same thing. So uh, thank you, Stephen, for doing this. We of course. Praise you. Thank you. Um, good morning. Um, before we begin, uh, I just, like, I want to acknowledge the awkwardness of losing a member of your church about a month and a half ago. We lost a member of our church uh, to COVID. It was the weekend we were moving into our new building, a building we had finally had for our church to be ours, a weekend of celebration. And that weekend, I think Friday night, we lost a member of our church. So I feel with you the, the angst and the frustration and the sadness. Um, but God's word is good, and God has a word for us this morning. And we're going to be in Psalm 19, so if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Um, I, before we begin, I just want to pray one more time and ask God to be present with us this morning. Lord Jesus, we are uh, small, finite, tiny little creatures before your awesome, infinite wonder and glory. Um, Lord, I pray on a morning of, of, of grief and uncertainty, um, of sorrow and mourning, Lord, I, I, pray, uh, I pray we would lean on your gospel and on your word this morning. Lord, your word is perfect and it revives the soul, and I pray this morning that it would revive the souls of this church. I pray that the focus this morning would be on that reviving glory that you've imparted to your word, and I pray that we would cherish it. I pray that this church would cherish it in this moment of need. Uh, Lord, be here. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Um, as Brent said, my name is Stephen. Uh, I'm on staff over at Sovereign Hope Church here in Missoula. We just got our new building on 3rd Street. Um, I work with the campus ministry. I run our campus ministry actually on campus, kind of like a, a, any other normal campus ministry, but we're also a part of our church. Anyways, I run that. I've been with Sovereign Hope for about six or seven years now, um, and I met with Paul the other week, and he was, you guys were in need of some pulpit fill, so I'm really glad to be here. I'm honored to be here. Um, and as I said, God's word is good, and it was it's kind of uh, a little frustrated this morning when I got the text from Paul, because it was kind of between two sermons this morning, one that we're in, in Psalm 19, which is about the glory of God uh, in creation, the beauty of God, the majesty of God, and another on grief and on lament. And by God's grace, he has a word for us about his glory, his beauty, and his goodness in Psalm 19, and not on lament. Um, so as I said, if you have your Bibles, turn to Psalm 19, we're going to be there all morning. Um, so I have two daughters. I have a five-month-old and a three-and-a-half-year-old. Um, and our three-and-a-half-year-old is, she's a talker. She loves to talk. Anytime we're in the car, she wants to play I Spy or tell a story or have a conversation about something because she just loves to talk. She loves to speak. And quite normal for a young toddler learning to speak, she doesn't get all the words right that she's trying to say. And she doesn't understand half the words that we speak to her. We recently took her to a movie theater for the first time, and we hyped it up as this really big experience for her, um, and it was super fun. But the entire time we're talking about this movie theater and kind of building to that moment, she kept saying computer, and we were, my wife and I were just really confused, like, what, what, a computer, what is she talking about? Turns out she can't say the word theater. So she was saying movie computer for a, like two days, she was talking about the movie computer, and we were so confused until we figured out that she just can't say the word theater. This morning, we're going to take a look at Psalm 19, and this psalm is all about communication, God's communication, his communication to humanity. This psalm is about God revealing himself 
to his people. But in order for an infinite and perfect God to reveal himself to a finite and fallen creature, he had to condescend to us to communicate with us. Now, the word condescend has a more of a negative connotation than a positive one, I would imagine, for most of us. We think about a boss that we don't get along with or a sibling rivalry where a brother speaks down to the younger brother. But when we apply that word to God's communication with humanity, the word condescension or condescending is a wholly appropriate word. God is coming down from his place of perfect beauty and glory in eternity to communicate with us tiny, small finite creatures. He is condescending to us to communicate with us, to commune even with us. See, for God to explain to us his nature, his beauty, his glory in his own language, in his own divine perfection, would be impossible for us to comprehend. And so in order to do so, God had to condescend to us to communicate with us. In the same way that our three-year-old's vocabulary is tiny compared to ours, in order to communicate with her, we have to, for her to understand us, we have to bring our language down, speak more clearly and more slowly, use smaller words. God communicating to humanity, God revealing himself to us is like an adult trying to teach a toddler language only on an infinite and more cosmic scale. The nature of God's character, his attributes, the work of God and what he's done, the desires and delights of God, all needs to be communicated to us in a way that we can understand and comprehend it. Because God is so generous and kind, that's precisely what he did. And in Psalm 19, we get a picture of that condescension of God bringing himself down to speak to us. And the big picture we're going to see in Psalm 19 this morning is this, that the, we're going to see the wonder of God's revelation. Revelation is just another word for revealing. So we're going to see God revealing himself to us, and we want to wonder at that this morning. And in reflecting on how God has revealed himself to us this morning, we're going to see three points in the three movements of the psalm this morning. First, we're going to see the work of God in creation. Second, we're going to see the word of God in scripture. And third, we're going to see the witness of God in Jesus. And my hope for this message this morning is that it's both instructive and produces wonder in your soul instructive that you and I might understand the mechanisms that God has chosen to reveal himself to us, that we might understand what's important to pay attention to, that we might understand what's important to provoke awe, instruction that we might know him, obey his commands, and conform our lives to the way that he has designed us to live, but also wonder, wonder that he has come down from his seat in glory to show you what he is like to give you specific wisdom on how to live your life in a way that maximizes your joy and his glory. Wonder that God would come down to seek a relationship with you. Wonder that we might respond to God, as David does, longing to honor him who is so full of glory. So as we begin our time in Psalm 19, we begin our first point this morning, the work of God through creation. The first way that God describes, or Paul, David describes God's coming down to us is his work in creating. Look at Psalm 19, verses 1 through 6. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom, leaving his chamber and like a strong man, runs 
its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Everyone on earth can point to nature and creation and notice how phenomenal it is. It isn't normal that this universe would just exist. Even if you aren't a Christian or subscribe to a creator, we can all agree that creation and nature are wholly unique and phenomenal and are hard to explain. And for the Christian and for David, that uniqueness is expressed as God revealing himself. The very existence of all of this proclaims a God, but not only that, a God of glory. Notice the specific words God, David uses to describe creation. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky proclaims his handiwork. All this poetic language to say that the existence of the skies and the stars and the sun scream of a God, a God whose power and creativity and majesty and bigness. Look at the last word of verse 1. The sky above proclaims his handiwork, the work of God. In our very state, in Montana, the mere existence of Glacier National Park speaks to the glory of God, the work of God. Travel to the Grand Canyon or the vast depths of the Mariana's Trench, we have yet to explore as humanity beautiful, wondrous things that speak to something big and glorious. But what... What is God revealing through creation? What is he communicating to us? Because all of what God does reveals something about his nature and his character. So when we consider the wonders of the world and the wonders of creation, they're saying something specific about God. See, generally in creation, we can see his power, right? We stand atop Logan's Pass and we look at the mountains at Glacier and just in awe of the vastness, the bigness, and the beauty of God. So we see the power and the beauty of God. But more specifically, we can see the creativity of God. Creativity that we create the Sahara Desert and yet also Glacier National Park. Varied topographies across the world. Even more specifically, we see beauty. We see the ordering of day and night, the rotation of the planets, the organizing of cells down to the smallest degree so that we can see a God of meticulous care and detail. When's the last time you glanced at the vastness of Lolo Peak and the first thing you thought of was the height, the depth of God's creativity? What about looking at the trees, the green leaves in summer and spring, turning yellow and brown in the fall, and now we have the naked beauty of trees that have lost their leaves? When's the last time the changing of seasons caused you to consider the creativity of God who would put a color wheel on the trees that dot this city. Our planet is miraculous. It's beautiful. It's glorious. If you've seen any of these recently popular documentary series about creation, One Strange Rock, Planet Earth, and so on, they artfully describe the complexity of our planet and the life that lives on it. They describe the multitude of topography around the globe, the kind of animals that can live in Antarctica versus the desert or here in Montana. Bodies that are tailored specifically to thrive in those harsh environments. There's this one part of the show, One Strange Rock, where a biologist is scuba diving in the Caribbean 
and is describing how coral reproduces. And uh, once a year at the same time, during a full moon, all of these coral species they shed their reproductive cells. And the diver is here at night marveling at the coral that is shedding these cells, shedding these cells. And these cells glow in the darkness on a full moon. It's this beautiful picture of a light illuminating underneath this water as coral, an inanimate living object, reproduces itself. These shows provoke awe at the complexity and beauty and diversity of our world. They provoke awe at the very basic functions of coral. And see, there's a common thread to all the wondrously complex and strangely beautiful creatures on this earth. All of it shouts the existence of God. Here I am. Look to me. Look what I have done. See how big and beautiful and glorious I am. But beyond the mere existence of God, it declares and proclaims the existence of a beautiful God, a creative God, an ordered God, a God of details, a thoughtful God, a powerful God, a vast and infinite God. We live in Missoula, a truly, truly unique place. Beauty that many people only dream of living for or living in. More than most, we get the varied proclamations of God through his work in creation. And why do we get that? What do we do with that? It's that we might worship. It's that we might have wonder. And rather than merely cherishing what it is God has created and existing only in the cherishing of it and the beauty of it, God has designed us to turn towards him as our hearts are provoked to awe. Look at Romans chapter 1, verse 20 and 21. For his, that's God's, invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived. That's all those big things about God have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. See, there's a proper response to what we see around us in creation. And seeing the vast, complex beauty of all of this, whether it's an analytical mind and we want to know how things work, or the creative one that just loves the beauty of it. See, there are two responses to seeing the glory of God in creation. Either you see it and marvel at it, are compelled to consider the creator, the creator God, or like these Romans, you stop at the beauty, you stop at the creation, and you cherish the creation itself, foregoing any implications it might have to the existence or the glory of God. So either you see this glorious beauty that God has created, and you want to know the God that placed these mountains in our city. Or you experience it, and that is enough in itself to satisfy. The problem is creation itself isn't enough to arrive at totally knowing God. These Romans thought so, and they chose to revel in the mere shadow of beauty than the one who cast that shadow. So the question, as we consider this first stanza, when you look around you, what do you see? Are you compelled to know the God who, with a word, placed Lolo Peak mere miles away? Or are you satisfied with the experience in itself? After all, you have a life to get back to. 
There's a lifestyle of adventure here in the Northwest. People move here for that adventure, that the weekends might be spent skiing, that the work week might be spent so that they can then go fishing, hiking, camping, something in nature that brings them love, peace, joy, experiencing the adventure of the Northwest. I've known several students, as I said, a college minister on campus, to whom creation is enough to them to know God. With the excellent forestry program here, so we've already described the beauty of Western Montana, there have been a handful of students over the years who I've gotten to know, just meeting on campus, who their closeness to God is close, most closely felt hiking a mountaintop, not meeting with the saints, gathering with the body of Christ. They don't need church, his word, or other Christians even. What do you see when you look at the world of beauty and complexity that God created? Do you see a God worth knowing? David sees creation and he sees the glory of God, his power, his might, his beauty. But David knows that knowledge of God through creation alone is limited, which is why David turns to another source of revelation and condescension. It's our second point this morning, the word of God in Scripture. As Paul describes in Romans, creation gives a glimpse of who is out there, a silhouette of the vast and glorious creator, not a complete picture. So David goes on in the second movement of our psalm this morning, Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Look at the subject of what David is marveling at here. The law of God the testimony of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord, the commandment of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, the rules of the Lord. All these words have varying references to different aspects of what God has delivered to Israel in the law. Some mean covenant, some have specific instructions for how to live. Some refer to the promises that God has made. Some refer to the character and actions of God himself. All of it gives us a complete picture of what we know to be the word of God. David is trying to accumulate, accumulate the sum of what all those words refer to as one unified subject, the scripture of God. Look again at verse 7 and 9. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Look at those adjectives he uses to describe the law. I don't think about those words when I think about the law of God in the Old Testament. The testimony, the precepts, the commands, the fear, the rules... That word rules is used. And David sees it all as reviving the soul, 
making wise, rejoicing, enlightening. Perfect, sure, right, pure, enduring forever. If we do the same exercise we did earlier, when we arrived at Scripture, put all of these words together, the best synthesis we can muster is fullness. Fullness. The Scripture, God's Word, is the fullest and most complete picture David has of who God is and what he is like and what God has intended for man. So we know by looking around ourselves on a mountaintop that there has to be something bigger, something beyond all of this, some kind of meaning that we want to attach to it. We could define. And David poetically says that there is and it's found in his word. Romans 1 says we can clearly see power, divinity, beauty, and order, all behind creation. But creation doesn't explicitly speak of God's justice. Creation doesn't explicitly speak of God's grace and mercy. It doesn't mandate a pattern of living that would bring us joy and life. Creation itself doesn't promise eternity or forgiveness or a savior. But the word of God does, and it does so in fullness to perfection. See, God's word is his coming down to us to speak to us in his language, or in our language. How incredible that is, that the perfect and infinite God of the universe would speak to us in a way that our tiny little brains can understand. Give us words that we can read and have with us always to understand. God has condescended to us in the most beautiful way, lowered himself to speak to us in our own languages, first to Moses and then to David, then to the prophets, then to his disciples, and then to Paul. The Bible is God speaking to us that we might not merely know he is there as creation shouts and proclaims, but we might know what he is like, that we might know the purposes that he has designed us for, that we might know the satisfaction of worshiping him as we ought. Creation is no substitute for scripture, however tempting that might be in the Northwest. Our experiences aren't a substitute for scripture. Education at a university isn't a substitute for scripture. A TED Talk or a self-help book or even a Christian book is no substitute for scripture. There are no substitutes for scripture because it is in scripture that God has communicated to us. He has chosen to reveal himself to us that we can all point to and objectively say these are the words of God. However tempting it might be to sleep in and neglect opening his word, nothing substitutes for the word of God. Not even arriving here on Sunday morning and listening to Paul preach, nothing substitutes for you knowing God in his word. How many of us have sought to know him or ourselves or explain the world around us apart from his word? Maybe not intentionally, and maybe we wouldn't ever say that, but how many of you feel closer to God sitting on a mountaintop than you do in the groggy doldrums of a morning Bible reading? Feeling close to the Lord but abandoning, as Psalm 1 says, the streams of life that give joy, purpose, and peace to the believer. 
It is easy to value creation here in the Northwest more than most. But the question is, do we value God's word more? Is your Bible reading more important than an adventure on the weekends? And not just in word, but in deed. Again, we might never say that, but do you read your Bible? Gold has been a constant source of value throughout history. Transcends currencies, transcends economies. It has been a constant source of value throughout history. And look at how David describes the scriptures comparing it to gold. Look at Psalm 19, verse 10. More to be desired are they, that's the scriptures, the rules, the precepts, the commandments. More to, more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Uni, using creation, his own poem as a contrast, using something that is the most valuable transcendent currency across time, David sings that the word of God is more valuable than that which has stood the test of thousands of years in monetary value. And beyond that, that the word of God is sweeter than honey, the drippings of fresh, organic Missoula honey, sweeter than the most decadent riches of food in all of creation. See, those of us that call ourselves Christians want so badly to know God, want to know him and be close to him and yet we too often ignore the sweetest and most valuable gift he has given to us to have to look to him too often we ignore his word if you feel distant from god if you feel stagnant if you feel as if you are not maturing at the rate that you want to if you're reading books and listening to sermons and coming to church on sunday and singing loudly in worship that you might hear and experience god all while neglecting your Bible, you are neglecting the most basic mode of communication and revelation that God has given to every single one of us. Again, there is no substitute for the specificity, the comprehensiveness, and the beauty of God's revelation for you and I than this beautiful book of his word. So we are infants and children we are incapable of understanding apart from God revealing himself to us. Just like it is impossible for my three-year-old Harper to understand me or me to understand her when she says movie computer. <laughs> but God has done that. He's condescended to us that we might understand him and know him in our own language. And not that we might just know truth about God or truths about God, but that we might experience the joy of living in that truth, that very experience we're after in that adventure. We get in its more full and complete form from his word. And there's joy to be sure because while the product of seeing God through his work in creation are these big truths, his power and cre creativity, his existence, seeing God through his word is a deeply personal experience. Look at Psalm 19 verses 7 through 9 once more. The law of the Lord is perfect. What does it do? Revives the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. That's all of us up here. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandments of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. There is such depth of personal joy, of soul-reviving truth in this book. 
for those that see it and obey it and cherish it and look to it when things are hard. There's a satisfaction that cannot be reached, a deep well of satisfaction, the depths of which cannot be reached in his word. And the problem, the beautiful problem, is that in our brokenness and in our weakness, we don't always see that. We don't always obey it. David finishes his song by himself revealing the depths of his own brokenness. Where God revealed himself as beautiful, David reveals himself as so deeply sinful that he cannot mind the depths of his own brokenness. It is the final movement of this psalm where we see the gospel of Jesus this morning. We see the witness of God in Jesus. And at the sight of beauty and the perfection of God in his work of creation and his words in scripture, David admits his sin and his imperfection. Look at Psalm 19, verses 12 through 13. Who can discern his errors? That is the God who revealed himself in creation and gave us his word. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me that I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. See, there's so much wrong with me, I cannot even see it. David says, keep me from hidden faults. Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful above all things. There's so much wrong with me, with us. There's sin in our soul that is hidden from us. There's evil in my heart that I presume to have a handle on that I most certainly do not. We are deeply fallen creatures in more ways than we can comprehend. God's word exists so that our souls might be revived when we feel that brokenness. So that life would be given to our bones when we see how horribly fallen we are. We don't often see what God has revealed to us because we are blinded by our hidden faults and presumptuous sin, as David described. There is almost certainly more to your sin, to my sin, than any of us can see or identify. And this is coming from David. If you don't know about David, David is a man who committed adultery with a woman, abused her, got her pregnant, and tried to hide it by having his husband murdered. That guy was describing deeper sin that he didn't even see. He says there is a deeper brokenness than that disgusting sin. There are desires lurking beneath the surface of our hearts that would more than surprise us, but would disgust us and terrify us. And those desires often supplant our desire to know, love, and cherish the Lord. And while God's word is perfect, pure, and right, and all those superlative adjectives that David used, we are not. We are incapable of meeting that fullness in obedience. We are incapable of meeting that fullness with our conscious selves or our unconscious selves, in the hidden parts and in the open, in the revealed parts. And David felt this tension, this joy at the commands of God, and yet this sorrow at his inability to keep them. David felt the tension of a condescending God who, for reasons beyond his understanding, would give to humanity his work and his word only to find that his own heart was so broken beyond repair that he could never be the man that God wanted him to be. And that is why David cried out for help. Declare me innocent. Keep back your servant from sin. Let them not have dominion over me. Let my words and heart be acceptable to you. 
In other words, David, despite the perfection of his word, couldn't keep the perfection of God's word. If we were just to consume only the revelation of God in his work in creation, we miss the specifics of God in revealing himself in his word. But even with the two together, we are left frustrated because if all we, if all we had were instructions on how to live, to find joy and peace in God, we would inevitably fail to follow them and inevitably arrive at sorrow. We'd be left in the same place as those without the word in Romans 1, under judgment. Because no human can fulfill the righteous requirement of God's word. David knew there would be something more, a greater revelation, a greater condescension. Look at verse 14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Ultimately, what David was looking towards was a redeemer. David knew because God promised one in the scriptures. The redeemer would come and that redeemer would keep fully the fullness of God's word where David could not. See, you and I, we, we're, gosh, we're so privileged we're so privileged to live this side of the cross of Jesus because that's the lens through which we get to read this psalm and every other psalm. David didn't have the specific clarity of the cross, but he knew the Christ was coming. He knew the Redeemer was coming. And that's our third point. The witness of God in Jesus. David longed for a Redeemer, and we have that Redeemer in the ultimate act of condescension, as Philippians 2 describes, Jesus in perfect glory and existence with God the Father and God the Spirit came down into flesh, this broken, gross, disgusting flesh, even as a man, even to death, death on a cross. Jesus entered this weak flesh to fulfill the word where we could not. Look at John 5, verse, excuse me, verse 37, 40. <clears throat> 37 through 40, rather. This is Jesus talking to a group of Pharisees who love and cherish the Torah, who love and cherish the law of God. He says this, And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have heard, but his form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures, because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. See, these Pharisees thought that they could have life in keeping the precepts, commands, rules, law of God to the best of their ability. And even if they were good enough to success and successful enough, they could have what they needed, life, the favor of God. They didn't need a Messiah and a Savior because the word was enough revelation for them. The law and the word don't exist that we might have confidence in ourselves or our ability to keep it. It exists that we might be convicted of sin and compelled to look to Jesus because the entirety of the word itself is looking to Jesus by his own words. The entire Old Testament points forward to the cross and the entire New Testament points back to the cross I asked earlier if you were frustrated by your own lack of growth or maturity, if you felt stagnant. Sometimes that's because we don't cherish the Bible like we ought to, and sometimes, and that's true, but sometimes it's 
That frustration persists when we do cherish the word. But when looking at the word, we don't see the gospel and we don't see Jesus. We see ourselves. We're looking only for the ways in which we might change or obey or be honoring to God and not consider the glory of the gospel in Jesus who fulfilled all of those commands before we had to. More than a third point of revelation, Jesus is actually the fulfillment and the end game of everything that God has said and done. The work and the word of the Father are unified in what they reveal. They point to Jesus. It's not just the word, but it's creation. Look to Romans 8, verse 22 through 24. For we know, this is Paul speaking to the Romans, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have been the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons and the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. See, creation itself is looking forward to a time where there is no dying death and disease where there is no consuming forest fires, earthquakes, tsunamis, or hurricanes, where there is no snow of any kind anywhere. Creation itself is longing for the return of Jesus and the restoration of all things. But even in merely pointing to Jesus broadly, that everyone might have this common experience, they work together, the word and the work, creation and scripture, to reveal a Jesus that arrives to us on a deeply, deeply personal level. Look at 2 Corinthians verses 4, or cha- chapter 4, verses 3 through 6. It's my favorite verses in all scripture. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Here's the tie-in to creation. For God, who said, let light shine in the darkness, has shown into your hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Everything God has said, everything God has done funnels to the special and unique revealing of Jesus as the Savior of everything. Once again, using creation, light, and darkness. For the God who said, let their light shine out of, the, out of darkness has shown light into our hearts. Maybe this morning you don't feel that light or that experience with Jesus. Maybe you wouldn't even call yourself a Christian. Maybe you wouldn't trust, as what Paul gives to us in first importance in 1 Corinthians 15, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. Consider Jesus. If Jesus is the greatest truth, the greatest everything that God is building to in his creation and in his work, in everything God is building to in his word and his scripture, the very words he gave build to Jesus, it would stand a reason that the fulfillment of your life's purpose, that the fulfillment of your hope would be in Jesus as well. Close the psalm with me in verse 14. Let the words of my mouth 
and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Most of this song consists of the words of God. David is ascribing to God this beauty, this glory and work and creation, and then marveling at his own fallenness and brokenness. But this right here is about what David declares, what kind of words and what kind of thought are produced by David in response to God's revelation. The only way that to be acceptable in the sight of God is if he sees us through the lens of the blood of Jesus. Because as we've already seen, it's not enough to see that there is a God, and it's not enough to try and fulfill the commandments of God in Scripture. We need a rock and redeemer. We need Jesus. David's hope for his life, outwardly and inwardly, is that it would produce exactly what creation and scripture do. A bold declaration of the glory of God and redemption in his grace and mercy in the gospel of Jesus. Everything we want from our own lives should be the same. There are so many competing hopes, competing desires, success, school, and careers, a stable and thriving marriage, children that honor us and mind us, that we raise to be productive members of our culture and our society that would shine a light to Jesus even. Some of us want a house that's put together to be responsible. For some of us, it's about what our lives say to our neighbors and our friends and our families, what people see. We want comfort. We want happiness, security, purpose, meaning. See, as God's work declares something about God, so does our work. So do our words. And so do our hopes. All of our lives are saying something about who we are, what we believe, and what we hope in. It really is just a matter of what your life is saying, what your life is revealing. If the light of the gospel and the glory of Jesus isn't at the very top of your life in proclaiming both inwardly to yourself and outwardly to those around you, you're missing the purpose God himself has given to each of us. And again, as the Corinthians verse, the only way to see it is by God revealing himself to you. The only way to see it is by the scales being ripped from your eyes that you might see the glory, the beauty, the majesty, and the wonder of God, not just creation, not just his word, but what both build to in the gospel and cross of Jesus. So ask for help. Pray, ask for help from God. And more than that, ask for help from those in this room, those in your church. It isn't enough to stand on the top of a mountain to know God and be close to him. It isn't even enough to try and obey and be good enough. You need Jesus. You need the gospel. And you need your brothers and sisters to help you see what is so deceptive and hidden in our hearts. So this morning, as we close, I just want to ask you, what do you see in creation? What has God told you in his word? Is it Jesus? Is Jesus the culmination and fulfillment of all the revelation that God has given us, both word, work, and in the witness of Jesus? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, 
grateful once again for this morning and this church and uh, the honor to just share the word. Father, I pray in this beautiful city, in this beautiful state, Lord, I pray that our hearts, as provoked to awe and beauty and glory and wonder at what you've created, Lord, our hearts, when they're provoked by your word, Lord, I pray that the end of our thoughts would be Jesus. I pray that our thoughtlessness would not be a hindrance to your glory and to our sanctification, but Lord, that we would surround everything with the gospel of Jesus. Lord, I pray that in a in a culture that is so consumed with adventures and beautiful weekends of fun and excitement and experience, Father, I pray that never would we neglect your word. Never would we neglect your precepts, your commandments, your truth. Lord, be with us. Reveal to us where we are weak and foolish. Reveal to us where we need to see you more clearly. Lord, reveal to us where we need to see the gospel. Lord, help us trust in you. Let us love you and honor you. Help us see where we cannot. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.